But first this hour, I'm delighted to welcome back to the program retired Major General Mick Ryan for an end-of-year account of what he believes lies ahead in the Ukraine war. I mean, it's hard to fully believe that this time last year, just before Christmas, most observers did not think that Vladimir Putin would ultimately invade neighbouring Ukraine, despite all the posturing. But he did. On February the 24th, thousands have died, his own troops especially, Ukrainians as well, and you've heard about the airstrikes at Ukraine's energy infrastructure, leaving Kharkiv, for instance, completely without power. Putin has well and truly weaponised winter, bringing the misery of war fully into the civilian realm. Well, Mick Ryan, who'd just retired earlier this year after a long career in the Australian Army, found himself on the front line of commentary, could we say. I'm so pleased he could join us again. Hello there. Hi, Geraldine. It's good to be with you again. Uh, Mick, in your most recent writing, you say two key things, I think, that the Ukrainians will need to constantly adapt their methods to outsmart the Russians and that the Russians' newish commander, General Sergei Surovikin, is likely to be a much tougher opponent than his predecessors. Now, maybe you could take us through both observations. What sort of adaptation will be required? Well, adaptation is a really important uh, virtue in a military organisation, you know, uh, and because the enemy, the Russians, are constantly evolving how they see this war and the kind of weapons they use and where they're fighting, the Ukrainians need to anticipate that they need to be able to respond quickly. So, you know, we're seeing the Russians adapt in the kind of strategic attacks. They're uh, having more massed missile attacks against civilian infrastructure. So the Ukrainians have had to adapt their integrated air and missile defence network to defend more against the smaller Iranian drones and other Russian missiles. That's a major adaptation for them. Uh, but, the, you know, the Russians are... Uh, have constantly throughout this war changed where they're focused. So the initial parts were northern Ukraine, then in the east, then in the south, now it's back around the east. So the Ukrainians have had to adapt their posture, uh, where they have their soldiers and the kind of weapons they use against the Russians throughout and they'll need to continue doing that to stay ahead of them. Um, and tell us more about General Surovikin. Well, he's a different person, I think, to the previous commanders. Firstly, I think he clearly has the ear of Putin. Uh, it appears that uh, General Grasimov, the, the chief of the Russian military, has kind of been taken out of the loop for Ukraine, uh, as has the Defence Minister Shoigu. This is very much a Putin and uh, Sorovakin uh, show now, which uh, will allow Putin and Sorovakin to better align both the political and military aspects of this war. They haven't done that well so far, and that is a really important uh, consideration. But Sorovakin, I think, too, uh, understands that he needs to consolidate Russia's forces. He can't be on the offensive everywhere all the time, that he needs to better coordinate uh, the air force and ground forces, which has also been a Russian point of weakness throughout this war. But also he's more willing to use the more brutal methods that the Russians used in Syria against civilians mm. to force both the Ukrainians and the Europeans to think about uh, negotiations and ceasefires. Um, where does he come from? Was, was he sort of spotted by people uh, in the hierarchy? Well, he's, he's a, a Russian army guy uh, through and through. Uh, 
Uh, he actually played a role in the uh, coup uh, around Boris Yeltsin's days. Truly. He, he, uh, <laughs> that's right. He uh, was uh, against the protesters. I think he actually ended up uh, being punished over his role in that. He's also uh, been sentenced to jail time for allegations around arms trafficking. So this is a this is a person who has a, a, a dubious ethical uh, core. Uh, he also fought in Syria, was, was fairly rough and brutal there, and he was commanding Russian forces in the south uh, when he was appointed as the overall unified commander. So he has a broad background. Uh, he certainly has a uh, So he a saw sterling... how badly they were doing, in other words, firsthand. Yeah, he, he, he had good experience in this war, but he's also got experience in other places uh, as a fairly brutal and, and hardcore commander. Um, was it, by the way, was he involved in Grozny at all, the, the Chechen war? Which the... Oh, I think he also served there as well. Yeah, yeah, no, okay. he's, uh, he's got a very, very broad background. Uh, you say the Ukrainian military, despite all this, still has the advantage, though, and I think that's generally been the story emerging. Why do you make that judgment? Well, there's a couple of reasons why. Firstly, um, you know, they've been very effective in their strategic influence campaign, particularly in Europe and the United States, in, in getting uh, military assistance, which continues to flow. Uh, but also, you know, support for sanctions, uh, diplomatic support, and importantly now, economic support. Um, so they're, they're getting that. But on the battlefield, uh, they have momentum. You know, they've seized the initiative. They've beaten the Russians up in northern Luhansk and in the south. And momentum is very important in war. You know, once you are starting to win, it's good for morale, but there's something about momentum that uh, military organisations, if they're clever, are able to sustain and they'll want to do that over the winter. Uh, even though you also say they are running short on munitions. Yeah, and that's true for both sides. I mean, the story of 2023 and 2024 will be about mobilisation. Uh, it will be about mobilising industry in Russia, in Ukraine and in the West to step up the production of things like artillery shells, but also... Uh, the precision munitions, which are used a lot in this war. But I think, too, it will be a story of further rolling mobilisations of people in both Ukraine and Russia to sustain this conflict. Uh, any sense you have that Western will is declining? After all, we did hear this week that the US is now going to send their Patriot missile air defence system and the HIMARS um, um, missile defence system. So that would suggest it's not, but what do you, how do you sense it? Well, I think um, NATO and Europe and a lot of other countries have surprised the Russians in how steadfast they've been in their support for Ukraine. I mean, you can find any number of polls that are for or against the war. Um, but, I, you know, I think at this point in time, because Europeans and Americans aren't sending their young people to fight, they're only sending weapons, support has generally held up. And, and most of the polls tell us that story, like, it, you know, in our own country. Um, so I think at least in the medium term, the Ukrainians uh, are assured that NATO and Europe and the Americans are going to stand behind them. But the Russians are playing a long game here. They are betting that Europe and the United States will get tired of this war, get distracted, and uh, that's, that's part of the Russians' plan for victory. Well, I have also read that part of their thinking with this bombardment of civilian targets, I'm going to come to in a moment, is to uh, force 
Ukrainians out because it's just so ghastly there. And there was a recent poll I see showing about 7%. I don't know how you do polls there, but anyway, (laughs) 7% of people said they were prepared to move, which would, and the Russians are trying to prompt a sort of another refugee exodus into Europe, which they feel will definitely um, uh, hit, you know, the political climate in Europe. Now, uh, again, from what you've seen, because you've been travelling quite a bit, do you sense that there is a real consolidation uh, behind the Ukrainians who see it as them fighting instead of the Europeans, if you know what I mean, or do you think there's a weakening? No, I think, you know, that Ukrainians see themselves as fighting on behalf of, of Europe and, and uh, you know, the ideas around democracy. Countries like Poland in particular have been amazing in their support for not just the military support and political support for Ukraine, but supporting uh, refugees that have come across the border. Um, You know, the Russians really are attempting to strangle Ukraine as a nation. And part of that is depopulation, whether it's through forcing them out as refugees, stealing their children and giving them to Russian families or just torturing and murdering them. Uh, uh, look, I mean, the, the, just go further about that children issue, please, because I saw that you raised that somewhere and I haven't heard a lot about that. Um, there's actually quite a bit uh, of evidence that the Russians are taking Ukrainian children from occupied areas and having them adopted by Russian families. Um uh, I mean, it's just a repulsive idea um, and, you know, there's some evidence that, you know, tens of thousands of Ukrainian children have been subjected to this kind of really? torture. Goodness me. I mean, let's just dwell, in fact, upon this um, targeting of the civilian infrastructure. We're, we're, I wonder whether we're becoming slightly inured to the fact of it just because it's in the headlines so much. But this truly disgraceful military conduct, isn't it? Might it constitute um, war crimes charges eventually? Well, if a military force targets civilians deliberately, uh, that is certainly open to uh, a war crimes investigation. Uh, If they're targeting uh, infrastructure that has military utility, uh, for example, say it was a power station powering a military factory, that would be different. But these are power stations that are providing power to civilians. Um, there is no military utility in these strikes. These are pure terror strikes. Um, and, and frankly, there will be a lot of people uh, around Sorovakin and Putin that should be investigated for war crimes. Mm. Now, look, the question of how wars end keeps cropping up as well. Uh, in your travels, and I know this is something that the students of war history, uh, you know, are, are very well versed in it. Has anything surprised you among the key people you've been speaking to about how they do imagine this war can be brought to an end if it's not outright victory? No, uh, the, the thing about war is, is there's many enduring elements and and this war will end when the loser decides they don't want to fight anymore. Um, you know, I think the trajectory we're on may be more uh, similar to what we saw in the Arab-Israeli wars from 67 through to the mid-1970s. I mean, the Israelis beat the Arab armies in 67, but they fought an attritional war through to 73. There was another war. I think that's the kind of trajectory we might be on here, as, as terrible as that sounds... I do not see 
any short-term prospects for any kind of ceasefire or negotiation or agreement about bringing this war to an end. And you, you haven't seen it, heard anything. As some people have sort of said, remember, with autocratic regimes that look absolutely insuperable, um, that they can collapse suddenly because he is going to have to bring, draw up more reservists to, to fight, mm. um, even if this general is clever quotes, quotes, um, you know, there could be very, it, it may not be go well for Putin inside Russia and things could collapse, could they not? But that, that's certainly in the spectrum of uh, potential futures. But remember, there's lots of dictators that have held on to power like Saddam Hussein or Kim Jong-il uh, for decades. So, you know, there's also examples where they're able to do these kind of things for very long periods of time. And we should recall Putin has had 20 years to build up his power, build rings of protection around himself. And whilst at times things may not look that positive for him, we shouldn't underestimate his powers of resilience and survivability. All right. Well, Mick Ryan, we'll speak to you in the new year. By the sound of you, we are going to be speaking to you for a while, which is really terribly depressing. I mean, one's thoughts go to those Ukrainian people. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Geraldine. And my thoughts are with the people of Ukraine over this pretty grim Christmas. Mm. Major, uh, Major General, ex-Major General Mick Ryan, um, who's been commentating a lot on the Ukraine war. Thank you for your texts as well. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.